Let's go. What up? I am so stoked to be with you just like Ben is happy. These last couple of weeks, they're awesome because I like get to chill for a little bit for the first time in months. But then it, that chilling gets really old real quick. So I'm excited to be back as well. But I have to start by telling you a classic story from Brendan in high school. And this one, I honestly don't remember what year it was. Maybe sophomore summer, going into junior, something around there. And it was the 4th of July. And for me, the 4th of July is the, the, the epitome of 4th of July is if you're at the lake. Like, you can be in a, a, a block party at your neighborhood. You can be grilling out in your backyard. But if you're not at the lake on 4th of July, like, you're doing it wrong. The problem is, I've never rolled like that, so I never had the lake cabin. And most of my boys, we didn't roll like that either, so we didn't have the lake cabin. But I knew this girl, and her dad had a boat. And that's about the extent of our relationship. And she, on the 3rd of July, had texted me and said, yo, my dad's going to take his boat out and he's going to take his tubing. Would you like to come? So I, I squatted up with my homies and we went on the 4th of July, a sophomore summer, to go boating. And here's a couple of things. One, I'd never met this dad. Never in my life. I don't think I'd ever had a conversation with him. And right off the bat, we kind of hit a rocky start. He was like one of those weird, like, this is my daughter. Like, it's like weird. Like, we're boating. Like, she, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, I'm just here to tube. And so I was going to win him over because I'm a really good tuber. But the problem was throughout the day, we just still didn't quite connect. I, I'm usually great with parents. Like, I'm, I, I'm a, I was an admissions ambassador. Like, I can woo like any mom and get her to come to SDSU with her kid but this dad I just I, I I couldn't do it I could not break this dad so we boated all day we were in the hot sun we had like I don't know like chips and like we were out there for a really long time and so I end the day in the front of the boat it was like one of those speed boats that's got the triangle up front not a pontoon because you can't tube behind that thing so I'm in front of the speed boat sitting in the front triangle and we're pulling up to the dock we're finishing for the day and the dad turned to me and he said Hey, Brennan, will you catch the boat? See, but here's the thing. I don't, I don't know this guy, but I also got no idea how to catch a boat. And so I, in my pride, I could not say no. And so I told this, this gentleman, sir, yes, I will catch your boat when you pull in. But the other thing I forgot to mention is that on the front of his boat, he had a brand new fishing motor. And I don't know, maybe you're like me, but motors are supposed to go on the back of the boat, but this little plastic thing went on the front of the boat and he would put it in and it would keep him in his spot while he fishes. And so I said, yo, I'm going to catch the boat. I got this. All my dudes are hyping me up. They're like, you're going to catch the boat. And so we pull up to the dock and I'm catching the boat from what I feel like I should catch the boat. I sit up at front. I reach over the front of the boat. I go to grab the giant metal pole, except when you catch a boat, you're usually supposed to get out of the boat to catch the boat. But I'm still in the boat, now reaching over the boat, grabbing this metal pole, completely oblivious to the fact that this now plastic, brand new, expensive fishing motor is crashing into my hand, smashing it against this metal pole. All the while on the other side of the dock, because it can't just be a one-sided dock, there is a small, there's a family with small children loading their boat. So when the motor hit my hand, the words that came out of my mouth were not that pleasing to the parents of the young children. But I pulled my hand away, and the dad is livid because I just broke his brand new motor. His boat crashed into the dock. I had one job, and I completely failed. 
And so I'm like in tears, just completely losing my mind. Everybody thinks my hand's going to have to get amputated. Like it's all black and blue. Thank goodness nothing broke besides his motor. And here's why I tell you this story. That dad didn't know me. He didn't know who I was. And so he didn't know my skill set and he didn't know my purpose. Because Brennan, as a high schooler, my identity at that time was just to hang out, to have fun, and that fueled my purpose in that place. But he saw me as an adequate boat catcher, and because of that, my identity, he fueled my purpose and he thought I could do it. And when we rooted ourselves in something that was wrong, it fell apart. People were hurt, things didn't go the way they were planned, stuff got broken, children heard bad words. And so today I come to you, and I want us to answer the two, what I think is the biggest questions that life offers us. Who are you? And why are you here? Now this question of who are you is not just this surface level, what's your name? It's, it even goes beyond like your personality trait or your Enneagram number. That's not what I'm looking for here. That's not the answer to this question. It's deeper than that. Also, when I ask the question, why are you here? It's not why are you here in this room? It's not why do you live in Brookings? It's not why do you go to SDSU? It's, it's deeper than that. These two questions, we like to float the surface, but when we dig into the trenches, when we really get down and we try and recognize and answer these questions, there's an incredible truth that we can now take into 2022, but also into the rest of our lives to do exactly what God wants us to do and be the people he wants us to be. And to do that, we're going to look at Luke 19 and the first 10 verses there. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bible to that. Otherwise, it will be on the screens. If you do not have a Bible, out at our info desk tonight and pretty much every night at Oasis, we have free Bibles to give away. They are completely no sign up, no nothing, nothing's necessary. You can take a Bible and leave tonight. And so when the new year rolls around, I know some of us want to have resolutions that sometimes revolve around spending time with God and reading his word. There's something incredible and important about having the physical word. I understand the apps are nice and all of that, but if you don't have a Bible, please take one. Let it be our gift to you. Luke 19, we're going to read the story of Zacchaeus. And we're going to do this once before we read it. And so all of our Sunday schoolers out there, you embrace your inner Sunday school because Zacchaeus was a, and a wee little man was, there you go. You all learned something. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, I don't know the rest of the song. Luke 19 verse 1 through 10, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree, which I think is in the song, and to see him, uh, since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot that Zacchaeus was at, he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. So he came down from the tree and welcomed him gladly. All the while, the people around, they began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus, he stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I will give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. 
Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. We're going to go through three different sections of this passage. One to address who is Zacchaeus, why is he here? Another one to say who is Jesus and why he's here? And then lastly to look at your story and answer who are you and why are you here? Who is Zacchaeus? The Bible gives us three indications right in this text, in these 10 verses, of who Zacchaeus is. After this, Zacchaeus is never mentioned again. So this is all we know about him. And the first thing that it says is Zacchaeus was short. He was a wee little man. I read that text and I'm like, Luke, why you got to take shots at my man Zacchaeus? Like, come on, you could have said he was like, I, I don't know, you could use so many different words, but he calls him short. He goes right for the jugular. He attacks the man's height. And, and when, he, when he says, I, I want you to know this, like when he says Zacchaeus is short, like he's not saying if the average height is 5'10", he's probably like 5'8 and a half. Like 5'10 is a great height. It's, it is a gr- perfect 5'10". <laughs> He's calling Zacchaeus, he uses this word that's commonly used to describe things under five feet. Zacchaeus on his tippy toes is like four, ten and a half. Like he is a tiny little man. But do you ever, when you read through the text, get a little too weird into some of the details? Like, I don't know about you, but I sometimes will read through it and I'll just be like, I wonder what Jesus' shoe size was. Or like, you ever think, you ever think what was Mary's hair color? Or like... King David, let's throw back Old Testament. That dude got lobed ears or not. Like, all of these little details, like Peter and the gang, did they have scraggly beards or is that just every single picture I see of them at the Last Supper? Like, are these details true? Like, I don't know. I get just like weirdly deep. I think it helps me encounter the story if I can picture them in my mind. But all of those questions, if you're like me and you've asked them, the truth is you don't have answers. Nor will you ever have answers this side of heaven. And the reason for that is because the word of God decided not to answer those questions. If for Christmas you wanted to get Jesus a super dope pair of Jordan 1 low mochas, just this beautiful, incredible shoe, you'd probably have to pick like a 10 because 90% of people seem to wear 10s. You don't know that. But Luke gives us this physical attribute of Zacchaeus and tells us he's short. Luke's mission was to account from Jesus' life, from his birth to his death. He accounts all of these details. He's a doctor who vividly studies and then writes this down. Where we're picking this text up in Luke 19, Jesus is about to start traveling to Jerusalem to be crucified. We're nearing the end of the story. Luke has written this beautiful, delicate, a detailed account, and he includes this shot at Zacchaeus that says, that man, he was short. Why? No Jesus shoe size, no Mary hair color, no David earlobes, but Zacchaeus' height? I think it's because Zacchaeus' height doesn't just reveal one of his physical conditions, but it also reveals a a description of his character. That for Zacchaeus to be short, it also means that he lacks height. At the same time, he lacks depth. That his height hasn't matched up to the people around him and what it's supposed to be, but neither has his heart. That there's something about Zacchaeus in this word used right here, this song that we sing, that he was a wee little man. 
We're supposed to know that he was short in stature because he never measured up to what his character was supposed to be. I'll prove it to you by the second thing that it tells us about Zacchaeus. It says Zacchaeus was a tax collector. But not just any tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. April is right around the corner, which is mind-boggling. And April is tax season. And I don't know about you, unless you're an accountant person and you've got like that weird numbers thing, most of us don't like tax season. Like your parents don't like it, you probably won't like it in the future. Like sometimes you get money back, but in order to get the money back, you gotta fill out all the, it's a hassle. Nobody likes tax season. All it does is remind us that we're broke. Like uh, I didn't have money before, I filled out the W-2, I, I punched it, oh, well, it turns out I still have no money. And in the end, we, it's like what, tax, tax season is terrible for us. And it so undersells what it was for the Jewish people at this time. That they weren't just dealing with like H&R Block and IRS agents. They were dealing with tax collectors like Zacchaeus. And the reason this is so foreign to us is because we don't have a role that functions like that. That at this time, in this context, when the Jewish people, the audience that Jesus is teaching to, when they're living, they're existing in the Roman Empire. They're sitting under the Roman rule. That there is an emperor who's ruling over them. And for us, I think we lose what that probably meant to them. Because we see like this, this nice, like conjoined government that looks out for all people, because that's a lot of times what we experience. That's not what they're experiencing. That the Roman Empire had stretched to cover three continents at this, this time. It was in Asia, it was in Europe, and it was in Africa. It had dipped into all of those, and as it spread, it didn't just knock on people's doors and say, hey, what's up, we're here, we'd love to rule you. No, they came in with their armies and their power, and they overthrew whoever was ruling at that time. They threw out all people groups who had any kind of say, and they took control. They killed people, they stole, they did whatever means necessary to expand the empire. And while they were expanding the empire, they needed more money to expand the empire. And so they devised this way in which they would tax their now oppressed people to continue to fund the expeditions to spread their empire as far across the world as they could. And so the Jewish people are existing in oppression under the Roman government. And the Roman government has selected people to rule as tax collectors in these communities. And the tax collectors, we have Zacchaeus and we have Matthew, or these couple of examples that we have, these people... The, the weirdest thing is, is sometimes they believed that they would um, volunteer for these roles. That they would step up and they would say, you know what, I would love to be the tax collector in this region and the, the Romans would vet them. But do you understand what they were doing when they were volunteering? They were signing up for a position where they would steal from their brothers and sisters, their family, their friend, their neighborhood. They'd steal from the people who look like them, who talk like them, who worship like them. They would come in and they would take a little off the top. They would get to charge whatever they want for these taxes. And they would become rich at the expense of the ones that they loved around them. That's the role they had signed up for. And so you start to see a little bit of Zacchaeus' character leak through. Remember, because he's short. He's a wee little man. It's not just his height, it's his heart that's corrupted here because he signs up to be not only just a tax collector but to do it so well to be elevated to become the chief tax collector. He is now top of the pyramid scheme making all of that money off of the people he's oppressing alongside of his Roman counterparts. Which leads us to our third description of who Zacchaeus is. 
He's a sinner. But we find out that he's a sinner not from Luke, but from the crowd. Because in verse 7, it says this. All the people saw what Jesus did by inviting Zacchaeus over, and, he be- and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Have you ever been in a crowd large enough where a muttering started? Or another word that's flipped in in different translations, a murmuring. I, I have, unfortunately, here on Sunday nights. What happens is I will say something stupid. And pockets of you over the room will catch the fact that I have said something very, very dumb. But not all of you catch it, which I praise God for the people who don't catch it. But the people who do catch it, they love to tell their neighbor. And they whisper it to their neighbor and I hear the little chattering and I see it start to spread. That there is this common idea spreading out amongst the congregation that Brennan yet again said something he shouldn't say. That's what's happening here. Jesus has stepped up to the sycamore tree. He says, get down from the tree. I'm coming to your house today. And the crowd around is like, did he just say what I, I thought he said? I mean, like, does Jesus not know who's a key? Who's a, because they had come to the parade, this parade through Jericho. They'd come to see Jesus, to praise Jesus, to, to, to exalt him and to give him glory. And now they're standing there and the person they hate the most the, the, the person the Romans have put in charge of all of the money who is part of the system oppressing them, Jesus says, I'm going to your house today. And in this culture, that statement, for someone to associate with someone else, to eat a meal and to go to their house, was to accept them for who they are. And they're saying, you're going to go be with a sinner? You're going to go with, be with of all people, Zacchaeus. But Jesus invites himself over. And he associates with him. And I want to look at why Zacchaeus is there in the first place. And the key to connect some of these throughout the night is this idea that identity fuels purpose. Who you believe you are will impact your behavior. What you think up here of who you are, how you answer that question, will launch you into the world to do exactly what you feel like you need to do. They're inexplicitly connected, always. And so remember who Zacchaeus is. He's a sinner, a tax collector, a short man who lacks character. And so his purpose in the world, when he shows up on the scene here in Luke 19, is to make money, to have a great career, to accumulate stuff, and to find success. I mean, he is, his purpose, he's living this out so well, he has actually isolated himself from anyone else around him. Because our, our minds lock into this idea that, well, if Zacchaeus is, he's hated by the Jewish people because he's oppressing them and he, he's stealing from them and some of their kids aren't going to get to eat this week because Zacchaeus took an extra percentage off of their tax. Like, I, I, we understand that, but I mean, he's helping the Romans. They probably like, like him, right? Wrong. The Romans also didn't want to associate with the Jewish people. They thought they were scummy. They didn't believe in their religion. They didn't believe in their practices or their culture. So Zacchaeus exists in this single bubble all by himself. And he has traded his identity and his purpose to be a tax collector and become incredibly wealthy. Like I'm talking rich, rich. Like this guy gets to set his own salary and trust me, he is not lowballing it rich. Zacchaeus has everything, but he's traded everyone for it. He is perfectly living out what 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us is going to happen. 
says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, like Zacchaeus, they're eager for money and have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you feel the loneliness that Zacchaeus maybe feels? He has everything. Houses, all of the toys, all of the stuff, all of the status, all of the success, everything this world could ever offer you. And no one to share it with. Because his identity and his purpose are all jacked up. But Luke 19 doesn't leave him nor in that, in that broken identity nor that false purpose. Because he has this encounter with Jesus. So let's answer the question, who is Jesus? Verse 10 says this, For the Son of Man, that's his identity, came to seek and to save the lost. That's his purpose. In one verse, Jesus has given them both to you. He has called himself the Son of Man. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a son of man. My dad's name is Jeff. You, most of you are sons of men, or daughters of men, sorry, excuse me. But all of us come from someone, right? So for Jesus to label himself as the Son of Man, it, it, it feels kind of confusing unless we know our Old Testament really, really well. Because this term, Son of Man, that Jesus uses for himself is actually the description from Daniel 7. That when he says that, the Jewish audience in which he is speaking to is drawn perfectly back to the text of Daniel 7, where they think about the, the, the prophetic vision that Daniel had that described a king, a lord of lords, the son of God, the Messiah and the Savior would come and rescue his people. That this son of man would actually come and do miracles, he would heal people, he would cast out demons, he would do all of this incredible things, and they had been taught that since their youth, and Jesus comes and he says, I am the son of man. And instantly their mind starts to reel. Could this be? Could this be this man? And you see why Zacchaeus was so eager to get out of the, the mansions that he had to run, even though he was short, to climb the sycamore tree, just so that he could maybe get a look at this man. Because he knew if this guy is the son of man, this title Jesus so consistently refers to himself as, that changes everything. Otherwise, he refers to himself one other way. In verse 9, Jesus says, Oh, I lost my page. In verse 9, Jesus says, I, or today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus in this has referred to himself as salvation. That I know the S is not capitalized. And when you read it, it sounds like he's referring to an idea. It's because the idea and the person of salvation are overlapping. Because what he says, today salvation has come to your house. Do you realize this is after he's accepted an invitation? Well, he's kind of invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. So he stepped into the threshold of, Jesus, or of Zacchaeus' house, Jesus has, and says, salvation has come to you. He's talking about himself. And he's rebuking any false theology we had then and we have now that says, I need to earn it. I need to deserve it. I need to pray a prayer. I need to say a certain thing. I need to attend a certain amount of church services. I need to check the religious box. That is not salvation. Salvation is not an idea you can conjure up. It's a person you get relationship with. And that word salvation, it means to be saved, to be delivered, to be changed, Jesus extended a simple invitation to Zacchaeus and that simple invitation changed everything because we started this story with a short little sinner and we finished it with a son of Abraham. 
This title, Son of Abraham, is that Zacchaeus is embracing the faith that his forefathers of the Jewish faith uh, went, went ahead of and pioneered. That he is finally, after years of walking away, after throwing it all away, of after becoming a tax collector and acclimating all this wealth, he's finally stepping into the invitation that says, I'm going to live by faith and be a son of Abram. Who Jesus is as the son of man directly changes who Zacchaeus is as the son of Abraham. But why is Jesus there? If he is this son of man, if he is salvation, why is he walking through this town of Jericho? Why is he just traveling along the countryside, just teaching to anybody, calling out to Zacchaeus? It's because Jesus' mission, you saw it in Luke 10, Luke 19.10, is to seek and to save the lost. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and the people flood to him. But don't miss this, what's Zacchaeus do? He comes to the crowd, but he's too short and so he runs which is incredibly frowned upon in his culture for a man to run. He runs to a tree and he climbs up. And, and part of me thinks that's faith. Right? He's starting, he wants to see so bad he'll climb the tree. But I also struggle because I read through the rest of the Gospels and I see different ways that people respond in faith. If you read Mark 5, there are three different stories that show all incredible faith. The first one is there's this demon-possessed man who couldn't even be bound by chains, and he would cut himself with rocks. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he sprints as fast as he can and falls on his face and begs to be healed. That's one case. You read a little farther in Mark 5, as you have this woman, she's been bleeding for 12 years. She is frail and sick. No doctor could help her. No, no man could help her. No money could help her. She is at, her, at, light, at the end of her life, and she pushes through this crowd that they describe as thousands of people crushing around Jesus just to touch his cloak. You read farther in Mark 5 as there's this synagogue ruler, this person who had status and success, who was looked up to in their community, who, whose daughter is dying and he has no other option and he comes and he falls on his face and he pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter. Those three, that's incredible faith. Zacchaeus, Jesus shows up and he, and he comes to the crowd but he's too short and so he runs up ahead and he climbs up the sycamore tree but all he wants to do is see Jesus. He has no plans to interact with him. There's like a little bit of seeking, but not near what we've seen across the gospel accounts. But what's Jesus do? Jesus shows up on the scene. He's walking along the path. There's predicted to be hundreds, if not thousands of people along this path. He sees one man in a tree and he stops and he sees him and he looks up at him, which is kind of profound that the son of God looks up at Zacchaeus when the rest of the world, because of his stature, probably always looked down on him. And he looks up at him, and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. That is the mission of Jesus. The Zacchaeus, yeah, he showed a little faith. He played a little part. But Jesus chased him down. Jesus did exactly what he was supposed to do. He sought after the lost and Jesus' purpose changes Zacchaeus' purpose. Because he comes down from the tree and they, and they have this reunion moment where he starts to just make all these promises. But if you read the promises, really what he does is he gets out his checkbook and he just starts writing blank checks. He's like, half of what I have I'll give to the poor. Anybody I've wronged, if I've done anything to them, I will pay them back, not even one time, but four times as much as they want. 
These promises that Zacchaeus is making are going to make him go broke. He has spent his whole life acclimating wealth, his whole life building up his status, his whole life uh, just getting as much money and things as he possibly could. That was his identity and that was his purpose. The promises he's making is saying, I'm going to throw all that away. Because as the chief tax collector, the amount of people that Zacchaeus had wronged who will line the city streets to knock on his door to ask not only for what he's stolen, but for four times as much, it would be never ending. He would finish this promise penniless. I think it's incredible that Zacchaeus is saying, by making these promises, I will throw away my false identity. I will step away from my false purpose because you're worth it. I am a son of Abraham who's going to live in the mission of Jesus. Finally, I'll ask the question, who are you? Who are you? If someone comes up to you and you start to answer that question, what do you say? Where's your identity at? Are you a college student here at SDSU studying a certain major? Are you a worker, an employee at a certain business or a business owner? Are you an athlete with a gift? Or maybe we'll step away from something like that. Is it your humor? This is what makes you you, that you're funny. Your intellect, you've always been smart, you've always been gifted. Is that who you are? Is it your attractiveness? That when you walk into rooms, you always kind of feel like you're the best looking person there, or at least you're on the top half. I'm gonna go here. Is it your sexual identity? That how you would affiliate, is that your identity? Is it your skin color? That when someone asks, the first thing that pops into your mind, this is who I am, this is what defines me, this is what's in me, this is all I'm about, are those the things that start, (laughs) I got one more. Is it your relationship status? I'm single. I'm I'm in a relationship. I'm engaged. I'm married. Is that who you are? And I need to hammer this home tonight. Because the truth is, if you don't let God tell you who you are, something else will. If you do not let the author of life write your identity for you, something else will. And that something else, it will never fulfill you. It doesn't measure up. It's not good enough. A lot of what I just read is not bad. It is not bad to associate and to have these characteristics, but if that is who you are, it will fail you. You, At one point, you will not be a college student. You might be unemployed. You might break up with that person. You might have a divorce. You might lose your humor. You might lose, people might not think you're funny. You might lose your attractiveness. Do you understand if that's where your identity falls and and the ground pulls out from under you, you now have nothing to stand on. If God doesn't write it for you, Something else will, and they will not stack up. Check this out. The Bible in this passage of Luke was written about 2,000 years ago. But Scripture is unbelievable. Because before Zacchaeus knew who Jesus was, look at what he was defined by. He was short, a tax collector, and wealthy. They defined him 
by what he looked like, what he did, and what he had. Are those not the same temptations we face 2,000 years later? That we are so willing to trade items for what the king has bought us. We're so willing to answer the question or to ask the question right on first meeting, what's your major? As if if someone's a nursing major, that tells me anything about their character or their personality. We'll meet another person and we'll ask, hey, what do you do for a living? As if them being a teacher somehow in, it changes how I should interact and love them. We, 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 fill in, we walk into rooms and we look for appearance and we look for clothing, we look for materials. We start to look for these identity checkboxes and the whole time we're trading what God has bought us for what culture's just baiting you with. God created you. He is the author of life. He gets to tell you who you are. That's the end of the story. And I don't want to be like intense and weird about it, but I, just hear this. This is who God says you are. He says you are complete, redeemed, justified, holy, powerful, free, accepted, chosen, reconciled, righteous, blameless, secure, protected. He says you are a child of God, a warrior of God, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, that you are united under God to be the light of the world, that you are intimately and infinitely loved, that you are hidden in Jesus, that you are a temple of God crafted in his image by his handiwork, that you are a saint, a new creation, a conqueror, that you belong here right now with us and for all of eternity, that you are an heir to the throne, forgiven now and forever. That's who God says you are. And none of that we did. That's what Jesus gave us. We were bought with a price, with the life of Jesus, and now all he asks is that we return to him in that new identity. Identity fuels your purpose, and why are you here? Quickly, one last story. <clears throat> this last week, I was watching this documentary on Kid Cudi. I don't know if you know who Kid Cudi is. I used to absolutely rock with Kid Cudi. Like, there was something about him that I love. Nowadays, I don't listen to it because it's, it's, it's bad. But back in the day, I loved Kid Cudi. And so this documentary came up on Amazon, and I was like, I have to watch this. I just have to see some of what who was a childhood idol of mine, like, Childhood. I'm like talking early high school. Like I wasn't like fifth grade bopping Kid Cudi. But I had to know. And if you don't know a part of his story, he struggled his whole life with depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and addiction. It's why his music feels so raw. It's why it's so different than what I felt like everyone else was putting out. It's because there was a part of him that was really, really dark. And so in his documentary, he brings in a doctor who is a social psychiatrist. And with her PhD, she starts to explain a little bit of what she thinks Kid Cudi was going through. And she describes one of the hardest parts of his story is what most of us struggle with, is that he didn't know his purpose. But the problem was, she answered this question as a PhD doctor in a social science area, and she answered this question and said, I think the purpose of humanity is to be lost. And in our lostness, we're supposed to join together in our insecurities and our shortcomings and the hardness of life, and together we'll find this journey 
that doesn't end. It just continues in the lostness, continuing to explore. She's really just preaching this message that life is a journey. And I sit back and I hear that and it sounds kind of nice, but here's the thing. Jesus's mission, the son of man came to seek and to save who? The lost. To Jesus, the Son of Man and salvation is not just a part of the journey, it's the end of the journey. It's not just a check on the pathway of life, it is the meaning of life, it's the path we walk on. That to say that to be lost is the point is to miss entirely why you were created to exist. At one point you were the lost coin, you were the prodigal son, you were the lost sheep, you were broken, you were dying, you were stuck in your sin, but you no longer have to be that. Jesus offers you something new. And so when you're here, that identity as a child of God fuels your purpose. And your purpose is to join with Jesus, to seek and to save the lost. Matthew 28:19 is what we call the Great Commission. It's Jesus' final command to his people before he leaves for heaven. And in that command, he sends them out and he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When Jesus tells us to do that and we've labeled it the great commission, the very word co-mission, You and I are meant to partner with Jesus as he walks right alongside of us to do what he came to do. Zacchaeus started this story confused, lost, broken. He had his identity and his purpose screwed up. Then he met the Son of Man and everything changed. Tonight, I don't know how you walk in here, but you might be confused, broken, and lost, I invite you to come to Jesus. If you don't know who you are, you can come to Jesus. He made you. He knows who you are. If you don't know what you're here for, I'm telling you, Jesus knows what you're here for. You don't have to wonder about life's two biggest questions anymore. God has spoken them to you. You can leave tonight with confidence, not because of something I said, but because of something he said. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to learn from you. And I pray tonight that these questions that are swirling, these two, who am I and why am I here? That your spirit would speak to each and every one of us in a way that's unique and tangible. That we would have confidence to know that we are a child, holy and loved, We are chosen and accepted, forever freed by who Jesus is. And God, I pray out of that identity, we would just get to live in our purpose, to partner with you, to seek and to save the lost. And that this year in 2022, there would be something different about the way we live life because we know who we are. We know why we're here. We love you. We thank you for tonight. We continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.